Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Ooh, let's turn it up. Turn it up, up, up. And then down. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Hello, hi. Uh, welcome to the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with <laughs> my friend as well, Dylan, but not just any fantasy today. <laughs> <laughs> this very moment, special episode very special episode the moment has come guys episode 179 we are here we are at the end of comeback week and we've had so many wonderful guests phantology christian cameron fiction fans our pod mj coon so many wonderful authors podcasters frequent collaborators wonderful books that we've discussed and what better way to it feels like dylan we're closing the chapter on a on a it's like a huge moment in an French era talking fantasy podcast history an era exactly because, yeah. I mean, usher us in, Dylan. Usher us in. Do the honors. Well, sure. I mean, we're here to talk about the one and only The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. A book <laughs> that I've been trying to convince Charles to read for over a decade, including... <laughs> I guess 178 episodes of recording a podcast about fantasy books, but we're here and Charles, the world just seems a little bit brighter all of a sudden because you've read The Lies of Locke Lamora. We've reached a new era. The world is just a little brighter today. And I mean... Guys, you are listening to someone who has read The Lies of Locke Lamora. If you notice that maybe I might sound a little different, that's probably the reason why. Because I'm forever altered now. There was the past me that had never read it. And then all this time, I've you know I've been reading it and reading it, and people have kept telling me to read it, and I had to like you know play it up because we're keeping this episode a secret. We're recording it even like it's so secret. We announced it before we recorded it. We're right in the middle of comeback week right now. Well, we announced that there was an episode and just put a question mark <laughs> as to what the episode actually would be about. And I'll say it was guessed by one wonderful fan already. So Wow. <laughs> I mean, anyone that's paying close attention, I feel like we need to take a quick moment before we get into the book. And I promise... Fans of Lies of Lamore that want to hear a discussion, we're going to get there. But I feel like we need a little bit of history to celebrate this moment. This has come mm-hmm. about from like the first time we ever did Friends Pitching Fantasy, which is over a year ago now at this point. Uh, it's like two years ago. We did that. It's one of the first yeah. like 10, we 15 episodes. We started this podcast in like June of 2020. So it's coming Charles. up on so two years. We're, so... No, it's over. We're in July now, man. Wow, yeah, we're in July. Yeah. (laughs) So it's been, we've been doing this podcast for over two years, and probably within the first month or two, 
we did our first friends pitching fantasy where you, uh, and for those who, we haven't done that in a long time, those who don't know what that is, we basically used to pitch three books to each other and then uh, each of us would pick one of the other person's three pitched books Mm -hmm. for to be a next buddy read for us um and charles you picked the name of the wind by patrick Rothfuss, so Mm. i'm I'm not gonna blame you too much for that one but i did pitch it a second time and you also didn't pick it then so (laughs) then you had a giant we had a giant campaign by many fans listeners uh, other content creators who are all telling you to read The Lies of Locke Lamora. And there was even a petition that got made. There was a petition on change.org. On change.org. <laughs> trying to I'm make the world you, I got different. emails. I got direct messages, multiple Twitter hashtags, a change.org petition. People have literally emailed me concerned, like, please just like read the book and Dylan you got everyone all spun up that I hadn't read it and look like it, it's been on my want to read list ever since it came out I just for the longest time before the show I was all hung up on not starting a series until it was finished and so I avoided that's why I avoided King Killer Chronicles and avoided Gentleman Bastards and then the show got me into King Killer and then I kind of put that idea behind me and then it just took a while and then after a while, it became part of my identity online. And I was the guy that has not read this book. So the fact that we're here today is huge. And, you know, we've we've been on a hiatus for quite a while now. And we were coming up with a way to how do we announce that we are ready to come back on a more regular schedule. And we came up with Comeback Week. We knew we had to close it out with reading this book and getting it behind us, man. And is maybe the most anticipated book that we've done in a long time. So super happy to be jumping into it and talking about The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch with my lifelong friend and co-host Dylan. Today is the day. Let's get into it. Yeah. All right. Well, before we dive right into this, I do want to say that this is going to be a full no holds barred discussion of the lies of Locke Lamora. So if you haven't read yet, ooh, a little rusty, Charles, a little rusty. <laughs> Gotta get back into this. I know it's been a while since you've been just the two of us. Right. Those R's versus those Y's is so difficult. <laughs> if you haven't yet read The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch, uh, you might want to turn this down in your headphones and come back later when you have. And Charles, can we both highly recommend this book now to our wonderful listeners? Dylan, (laughs) we absolutely can recommend this book to our listeners. There's a lot to recommend in here. I mean, this book was talked up very highly, and I think once people found out more about my personal tastes in fantasy, then the recommendations came in even stronger, and all for good reason. So I'm super excited to get into all of that, and I'm also super excited for an episode with just the two of us. As I kind of mentioned a little earlier, it's been a while since we announced our hiatus, that we've let ourselves be alone with each other on the air here. We've had a lot of guests wonderful guests and co-hosts we did the chatham voyage buddy read which was awesome and then we did comeback week we had the sara el arifi interview which was so wonderful so now it's just us us in this beautiful book 
like the old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does feel kind of weird just being back the two of us, but <laughs> it feels in the same sense, it feels right. There's something that is different but correct about mm, a true you and me. Return being, to form, they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you and me here discussing a book like we used to long before we ever recorded any episodes uh, about them. So, all right, Charles. I mean, where do we begin? That is a great question. I'm almost inclined to just go from the beginning of this plot here and talk through it. And I guess the first thing that jumps to mind for me is like how quickly this book set itself apart from everything else we've read on the show and this is just the beginning where you have i'm already forgetting his name is it the child taker the child napper what's his name the, the very beginning guy oh, who the, runs the yeah the school yeah it's uh is it a thief taker or the thief uh that doesn't sound thief maker is thief that maker maybe <laughs> we're gonna ma- mess to this a up great already start. early you know we i've read this multiple times so <laughs> i think that I think it's thief, it's thief maker. So I got it. I got, you got it. it. You know it. I put don't get on me. Yeah, you put so, me on the spot, which is fine. I've read it twice. I should know thief maker. Thief so maker. the thief maker with the young Locke Lamora was mm-hmm. so much fun. I don't know. And he's he's trying to sell a young Locke off to Father Chains, and it's through this like selling process that you get to know the backstory of this almost legendary character of Locke Lamora. And I mean, there's like the one quote that stuck out to me was like, he just, he steals too much. You know, this is the problem. He he steals too much. I can't keep him. He's too dangerous. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Leading up to that, he says... "Uh, (laughs) If he had a bloody gash across his throat and a physiker was trying to sew it up, Lamora would steal the needle and thread and die laughing. <laughs> so you, And this is, he's still just a kid at this time. So you get the sense that there's just something different about this kid. He's got some proclivity towards stealing that's just unnatural. But you also, he's good at it. And what he's good at especially, we find out, is the teasing element of stealing for the thief maker which is where he would put on sort of distraction acts and get people to believe like you know he was some kid with a plague or something like that and so that he could let's say clear the way and uh steal all the money where people are just leaving it out gambling so <laughs> it's uh yeah, we get that really witty, fun dialogue, and it sets the tone. In the beginning, it's Father Chains talking to the Thief Maker, and they're both just kind of old-school haggling with each other. Right. It's a great start. And Father Chains, what a great character, too. He Like, the just the scathing yet witty dialogue that these guys have with each other complements just the the job that they do as thieves so well and it's it's some of the funniest dialogue i've read in in a long time and i and i really appreciated like something about just real actual cursing that it just i was ready for it it, it hit my it I was vibing with it right away you know we were we came off a of reading like way of kings and all of that where they have 
made up curse words for things and wheel of time does the same thing yeah. like oh light it's a or- storm in good book the way of kings <laughs> but you just won't get this kind of cursing from a brandon sanderson book <laughs> no or it's no blood and bloody ashes no storm in this no oh light that yeah like it is straight up f-bombs s-bombs beautifully crafted all over the too. place beautifully crafted beautifully placed and there's something to be said about that where and it kind of reminds me of Patrick Rothfuss in a way. He doesn't really get vulgar too often, but it's this line of like, Scott Lynch clearly has the ability to write beautiful characters and dialogue and he has those skills and then he chooses to be vulgar on top of that. Because there's so many times you can just yeah. read dialogue and like, this is just vulgar to be vulgar, you know? But he's like purposefully choosing it and it, it, the fact that he could make something more literature capital L literature friendly and then chooses to be um dropping f-bombs and all this is is so much fun and, Pat- and patrick rothfuss does something similar where he takes those moments to be self-deprecating and tell jokes and err on humor more often than not and sometimes and it's just like not taking itself too seriously while also being really talented at the same time that i'm just in love with Oh, yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the most memorable quotes are used. I mean, it's almost a bummer that FTF is a family friendly show because (laughs) we can't deliver some of these lines uh, with the same vulgarity and brilliance, really, as Scott Lynch does. But there's even I think about the (laughs) this like probably the most famous quote from this at this point is they do this big lead up with why you don't mess with bonds mages because they're just so it's like a full chapter (laughs) basically of like bonds mages are so deadly and if you like mess with them you could set the whole group against you and just like you never ever ever do that and then it goes to Locke who's (laughs) like tied up facing a bonds mage and he's like Nice bird, a hole. <laughs> it's, it's like the first line. It's like it's so disrespectful yeah. to everyone. He's such a smart ass, and I absolutely. He's like, I definitely named Locke back in one of our first episodes ever when we talked about just favorite characters in fantasy. Period, mm. and he's right up there for me. Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. How do he do for you, Charles? Did he crack he, any lists? He's for you? way up there, but and we can get more into his character now if we want to. Just the one thing that holds me back from him being like an all timer is the fact that he's just cannot stop stealing he steals too much he hasn't learned his lessons (laughs) and he got all of his friends and family killed because he couldn't stop it's true he had every every teacher tell him he's he's crossing the line he like doesn't see the line he just is so attracted to the big con that he doesn't realize that he's crossed the line ages ago and even at the end with the bonds mage is a good example it's like i didn't kill him i just you know, cut off all his extremities yeah. and cut his tongue out he's still alive <laughs> it's like Locke, what are you it's doing like, and then you oh compare that God. to when he fakes a plague and to steal coins off the in the bar yeah. and then they kill everyone in the bar and light it on fire it's like you cross the line at a certain point and you're not even doing it for anything other than the love of the game that you risk everything and so many people die and this and that. And it, it, it's that part of it, which I love. I, I, I think, you know, Christian Cameron said a cool thing was like, it's 
fun to have characters that are blind to things sometimes. So Locke is blind to yeah. that, and it makes it fun. It's just so frustrating when you see it happen. And frustrating in a good way. Like, you want to be frustrated at a character when they're... Yeah. For me, I think it's that's part of what I love about Locke. And <laughs> I think, right, he's a deeply flawed character where he's... You know, he doesn't get the accusations of being a Mary Sue in the way that a character like Quoth right. does. I mean, obviously, we love Quoth, but he's he's a character that keeps he's ridiculously clever. And there's show don't tell clever in this too, which yeah. I love. Like mm-hmm. you get to see him actually being really clever instead of us just hearing how clever he is. But this is a part of his character that is clearly. From Like you said, he steals too much. It's from the <laughs> moment where he even introduced the idea of Locke. And then over and over again. I mean, there's there's quotes like the one from... Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, God, I can't remember who this is. Uh, I think this is Father Chains who says this toward the end of the book. Where he's like, someday Locke Lamora. Oh, that's Father someday, Chains. Yeah, someday you're going to F up so magnificently, so ambitiously, so overwhelmingly that the sky will light up and the moons will spin and the gods themselves will crap. I'm changing that bit a little bit. <laughs> Comets with glee. And I just hope I'm still around to see it. And then Locke says, oh, please, it'll never happen. And it's a great timing, too, with that quote, because it happens like right after the it's like one of the last things in the book after Locke's basically gotten everyone like killed and all this right. stuff. He's, right. It's He's just the a, end. I don't know. Yeah. And, and that's a and great that's the thing. We know it's not it's not a thing where it's like Scott Lynch isn't aware. He's telling you over and over again, this is just part of this character. So and it's called I, the I lies of Locke Lamora. And the beginning is like three <laughs> different instances in which his big scheme ended with like mass murder that he never considered. Because he doesn't want people to die. Like he's a, no. he very much is like I only wanted that one kid to get in trouble. I didn't want anyone to get killed. Right. And it's like, well, you, by stealing that big of a coin and setting your ambitions too high, you set off a chain of events that got all the whole class killed. This is one of those things about his character that is is fascinating. And that plays into like having to pay off your, your what do they call it? Like a death debt or something i'm gonna mess it up again but where he has to pay for every person that was killed as the result of his actions um i forget the name of that but uh because that comes up multiple times but yeah that's um death offering death death offering offering that you make yes thank you yes a death offering Mm -hmm. but to bring it back to Locke's character it's this idea of like he has all the best intentions he just wants to show off his thieving abilities he just completely lacks any sense of like who he's dealing with and what's gonna happen to him after he pulls it off you know and it's costed him people he didn't know strangers and then his classmates and then eventually his loved ones so to watch that trajectory was both captivating and frustrating but in all the best ways possible yeah, I think that that's one of the things that makes him so interesting. And he, it's like the difference between being clever and being wise, or mm. the word that they use in the book is circumspect. Like Father mm. Chains is like, uh, 
Uh, or actually, I think that's a thief maker who's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, See, do you know what circumspect means? It's like, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did not embody it either. So, no. uh, yeah, Locke is preposterously clever. He's very smart, but he just doesn't, he's rash. He doesn't think through his actions and he doesn't, and he, it's funny because there's this big thing in the book, which is, uh, um, I don't have the quote in from me, but it's like there's no freedom like the freedom of being constantly underestimated. Yeah, there's no freedom I, quite like the freedom of being constantly underestimated. And that's the quote. Oh, I almost nailed you, that. You were very, head. very close. Yeah, I missed one word. One of my yeah. favorite lines in the whole book, by the way. It's such a it's, great quote. Oh, it's beautiful. And Locke Lamora, part of his what makes him so perfect the way they describe him he's just like the most average looking person in every way <laughs> just like could be any individual where it's like you know we get a lot of these protagonists that are described as like the best looking you know you think of rand from wheel of time right they're described as like the Six best two, looking people on red the, hair blue eyes yeah, red hair yeah exactly <laughs> and Locke, it's just like no he's just looks like any person possible and so average and that's why he's perfect to be a thief because he could just blend into the the crowd but anyway the idea of the being constantly underestimated thing in another sense Locke maybe is constantly underestimated by other people but he also constantly overestimates himself and he constantly underestimates everyone else yes in comparison (laughs) to him so he's kind of allowing other people a lot of freedom by nature of him underestimating them so well said. I've always kind of thought, yeah, I've always kind of thought that that quote works works two ways. And it just I agree completely. It's a huge flaw of locks. And it brings me back to like Brandon Sanderson's like YouTube videos of his like writing class about having dualities in characters and what makes a good character is kind of their contradictions. And I think you hit it on the head right there. It's like he's someone who is super talented and he's talented enough that he can live like just like un- he doesn't need to show off. But he's a show off guy. He can't stop himself. But he's doing it for an audience of of nobody. He He's trying so <laughs> hard to be obscure and live in the shadows and hide his wealth and all of that to not attract unwanted attention. But then he goes and like... Oh, I'm going to con the Duke right now out <laughs> was this huge heist or, Oh, I'm going to go and talk to Kappa Barsavi and do all these other crazy things. It's like, man, you could have left. Like he had the option when he was faced by the gray King and told to imitate him yeah. to Kappa Barsavi, he could have fled and, and it probably wouldn't have gone well, honestly, given the bonds mage's existence, but yeah. it was an option. And, um, but anyway, it's a good it's a good duality that Locke has, and he could have left before all of that because there, everyone in the Gentleman Bastards, besides Locke himself, was pushing Locke to leave before he even got involved with the Grey King or mm-hmm. the Bonds Mage, like or the Falconer, because right after one of the other Garistas got killed, of you know one of the other thieving crews. I remember especially like uh, Carlo and Galdo were telling him like, you got to get out of here. Like we just got to protect you because you could be next. And right. that is before the Grey King sets his eyes on Locke. 
Right, that's true. And he has multiple opportunities. He's had means to do all kinds of things and yeah. just can't shake the con. And that's also, you know, kind of compounded by his... He does have this almost kind of this, this heart to him. He, he loves his mm. friends and he loves his, his found family. And I don't think he ever realized how much he was risking them at one point and then that just kind of fueled him to go even further after they died to do all kinds of irreversible actions that are way worse i think it's after they lose everyone that they go back into that interlude and drop the someday you'll mess up so bad line and then i think that's when he kills the bonds mage and kills the gray king and it's like well he he uh doesn't kill the bonds mage he just chops off all of his fingers and (laughs) takes his tongue and then some i mean by the end you have the bonds mage of falconer like you know, he can't speak or even really gesture that much, but he's like discovered. So they let him loose. Yeah. And it's, uh, it is a mo, <laughs> it is a moment where it's like, oh, lock, yeah. oh, lock, like, <sighs> like just, <laughs> just cause you didn't kill him doesn't mean that they're not going to be upset with what you exactly. did to this guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, it's like you said, he's underestimating his enemies very often, I think. And yeah. this is one of those cases where, uh, it's kicking yeah. off a whole series <laughs> and it's an inciting incident to a potentially even bigger threat than they've faced already. So, um, yeah, great character in Locke Lamora. Um, Another character that I remember you bringing up way back in the day was Father Chains. And oh, yeah. I gotta say... In our mentor episode, right? Yeah, our favorite Like mentors. we did an episode of, like Best Mentors. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, it's way, so long way ago back. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and one of yours yeah. was Father Chains. And I even think you dropped yeah. that line about how he would mess up and all that. I think you, used, oh, you dropped that quote, I think. Because it sounded familiar when I read it. And I was like, oh, this is the quote. And he's fantastic. <laughs> and I mean, this twist on the mentor where he, this book is like surprisingly compassionate for a book that's about thieves. And yes. that's something that always surprised me. Like even the, um, the thief maker who mm-hmm. is like, I'm selling it to you because he's going to die otherwise. Like there's some compassion to him, even though he's stealing orphans yeah. and training them to steal you know. and kills people. Like he has this weird streak of compassion and he's like, oh, he never lets them get sold into like um, sex slavery. That's the compassion and, and, from and, him. And, like, I think he was too. selling Locke just to like the way that a lot of characters, including Father Chains, frame him. His decision to sell Locke was just to like make a f- little bit of extra scratch out of the situation. <laughs> Maybe there was some compassion, but Father Chains doesn't think of it that way. But Father Chains does say that the thief maker is actually too compassionate to sell them into slavery, which which mm-hmm. is interesting. Like everyone's got a code in this book mm-hmm. and including Locke for sure, who mm-hmm. when he's given the option at the end of the book between going to go save it's like 600 nobles or getting his revenge that he wants so badly on the Grey King, Locke chooses to risk himself to save the nobles from Mm -hmm. being gentled. And he's even like, oh, that's no choice at all. Which, and when he does it, he's like, I'm a priest. (laughs) Which is so interesting to think of Locke (laughs) as a priest, but he's a priest of the Nameless 13th. So Mm -hmm. he's got this weird 
moral code where he will steal anything from nobles and he doesn't even want it <laughs> like they just have all this money just stocked up in their uh, in their house basically and to, yeah some reason he he just sees life as being pretty sacred in a way that you wouldn't expect from this like morally gray thieving crew leader Right, and I think some of that shines through just with his upbringing because Father Chains is also kind of a compassionate guy. I mean, sometimes he teaches through tough love, but he had a lot of great lessons to impart and he was insistent on everyone getting educated and earning their place at the table. And then like one of my favorite scenes was when he was walking um, Locke, like when Locke was a kid and he was walking him to a farm and he's like, because at some point you got to learn how to like yeah. be on your own, you know? And it's like all those kind of moments where you're like, oh, you know, that's actually, these are endearing moments that you get with Father Chains. And even when he's saying, someday you're going to screw up so bad that the gods are going to like laugh with glee. I just hope I'm around to see it. You know, it's actually like a sweet, tender moment. And it's one of yeah. the last moments you get of father chains but before the book ends too it's kind of like this sweet moment couched in cursing and vulgarity and i hope you i hope i'm there to see you fail it's a weird combination father chains loves that yes i mean straight up and he tells them look you're my legacy Uh, and he puts so much into them and he takes risks by taking someone like Locke on is taking a huge risk. He, mm-hmm. I mean, he was in a position where Kappa Barsavi was giving him some space and not looking too closely into what was going on because mm-hmm. uh, apparently Father Chains was part of like coming up with Barsavi. So Barsavi gives him a break. But yeah, you, you have a kid who's already attracted the attention of... Lots of people by breaking the secret peace. This is for those who haven't read for a little while, secret peace being the agreement between the nobles and the quote unquote right people of Kamor, mm-hmm. meaning like the the thieves under Kappa Barsavi mm-hmm. who are not supposed to steal from the nobles. Although that certainly doesn't <laughs> stop uh, Locke and uh, the gentleman <laughs> bastards. But yeah, there's uh, uh, there's a big risk he's taking on by training, especially Locke and. Yeah, he's just willing to do it because he, he sees the he's potential a, in them too, yeah. and he tries to bring potential. that out in them as much as possible. He's like, he's like those two, the the twins, they're good. The sons of twins, like they're jack of all trades, master of none. Don't worry about yeah. them. You are gonna be my like my brain child here, and then Locke is gonna be my muscle. And you know they. they you mean Jean's going to be the Jean muscle. Jean is going to be the Lock muscle. Is right? the I don't know why I said Lock. The so they're like, and he pits them against each other sometimes as a way yeah. to get them to learn, like genuinely learn their humility and stuff like that. And it's it's a surprising amount of um, of of love and endearment in this story that in an otherwise like book that could be like considered super gritty and grim dark and all that stuff and certainly there is a lot of that but first and foremost this book is quite compassionate which which i wasn't expecting i was expecting a lot more classic rogue elements of like oh well that's what you get for trying to be nice in this world (laughs) it's and you don't really get that here yeah uh it's and we talked about this some with mj coon who we 
just had on for us like weeks ago, but for our <laughs> listeners yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Uh, so Which she mentions me not reading this book, light. by the way. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> One of those things you just have to hold on to. It's like, I'm reading it right now. If only you knew. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you had an international best-selling author on your case. And she's been plugged in on all the memes and stuff about yeah. it, too. So we always <laughs> appreciate that. And it, yeah, just talking about actually a lot of the rogue crews of the fantasy genre, at least recently, because mm-hmm. they're, they're older. So like I think it's like Foff. Farford and the Gray Mouser or something, which I haven't read, but is like mm-hmm. one of the really like older school uh, rogue books. But uh, anyway, this has inspired a lot of the more modern rogue books. And, you know, MJ said that her book Among Thieves was uh, in large part inspired by this. And uh, yeah, it kind of set the tone with this uh, thieving crews that all actually love each other, like the actual honor among thieves aspect of it, where they they love each other and look out for each other. And it's actually a subversion nowadays, like what MJ did with having everyone in the thieving crew down to pretty much betray everyone else in the thieving crew. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's interesting how this set that tone. And, and I think Lockie and the others all kind of go a next step by mostly wanting to not like kill people in general mm-hmm. and wanting to do right by people. Uh, they, they have a little bit of the Robin Hood element to them where they're, you know, s- steal from the rich and well, not give, give to, to anyone. Give to themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give to themselves. But they don't even buy anything with it, which is like, no, or they can't it. arise the suspicion, the you know, they have to like slowly yeah. like wash launder the money you know because if you just start spending thousands of crowns you would be rather suspicious but yeah yeah, that's i can see how this kind of paved a a different like forged a new path for like roguelike gray fantasy because it is those elements of humor camaraderie It, it takes honor amongst thieves but it's like you know it's not quite honor amongst thieves it's like compassion amongst thieves yeah. where it's like they just all kind of like love we don't want to fight each They're other we don't want to kill yeah like we want to we want to yeah. get along and live in peace and just steal because it's fun <laughs> which is it's, <laughs> it's a pretty wild uh, scenario to be in but i mean to steal you have to be like a good actor you have to be good at math you have to be strong you yeah. have to be all these things so it kind of gets to you know, flex all these gentlemanly qualities about them or like how to have like a fancy dinner and what fork to use and how to cook a meal and how to clean a meal and how to serve a meal. You know, like they're learning all yeah. these things because it it's just like it, how they live life and stealing is just something like in this world of Kamor is just kind of like a fact of life. It's like part of the structure of society. It's like, yeah, you can steal just not from these people. And that's kind of how this economy works. It, it, it's uh, it, it's a really interesting world. Yeah. I mean, he's got to roll around with Dons and stuff. So yeah. that's, I mean, that's one of the first things we really see from adult Locke is, that he's got this 
big heist that he's going to pull off. He's going to pretend to be a wine merchant named Lucas Fairwright. And he's, uh, yeah, he's going to rob Don Salvara. And that's, uh, it's great too. Like you very quickly get a feel for what's going on during that scene. Uh, Like what the gentleman bastards are like where he's having them choke him out. He's having (laughs) one of the Sansa twins like choke him out and the other one's choking out John. And they like figured everything out. They're just waiting outside the church for the Don to come out. And yeah, everything's so elaborately thought thought through and then he has the ability to uh, play up that role in a way that he never would have without this gentlemanly upbringing for sure never forget the bastardly upbringing either (laughs) they never forget and the cleverness compounds when he pretends to be like someone in the guard and outs himself as a ruse you know it's just like another level it's like just keep giving him money we're gonna capture him we're building up the case (laughs) don't act like anything's different (laughs) it's like pretty wild stuff yeah i mean it's brilliant but it's also it's classic luck because it's like overcomplicating it in a way where it's like okay yeah this is really smart and i see why this would work but the risk that they're taking by having to break in and they have to take out conte who's like this really like great fighter and Locke takes a few kicks to a pretty sensitive area in that fight and he's still gotta pretend to be a midnighter so yeah it's really smart but it's also it does have that love of the game feel to it where he's like oh my god very over the top very grandiose it's like wouldn't it be so there's an easier way to do this it reminds me of one of these scenes that to me kind of sucked the momentum out of the back quarter of the book, but yeah, you know, oh, it's yeah. still pretty good. But like, you know, all the stuff with um, the gray King happens and then locks like, I need clothes. And you would normally, <laughs> that could just be handled in the background. It's like, and then Locke got closed and went on to do a thing. But no, it goes on to or him. Or Scott could have just not had the clothes get robbed. Yeah. Like this whole, so or yeah, you you're beat talking someone about up and steal their clothes. Like, there's so many ways you could go. Like but John instead, could do that. Yeah. Instead, you have Locke like go to one person and then yeah. learn a thing to con a second person to then con a third person to then get the clothes. <laughs> it was like, tw- like, t- like twenty to fifty pages of clothes stealing, and you're like, what is going on? Oh, yeah. Isn't time of the essence right now? And we're like three cons deep into clothes stealing but that's just how Locke operates you know yeah it's not the strongest part of the book you texted me about that when you got there and I, I hadn't read the lies of Locke Lamore in years so I was like I don't know what he's talking about with all this clothes stuff and then I got there I was like wow this is actually really long <laughs> and it's like the, one of the most interesting a, things in the book just central, happened yeah exactly it's like in one of the most central parts of the book. Like he's about to go after the Grey King and it's it's pretty it's long. After like he, he gets said. stuffed and, in the barrel and before he goes yeah. to the dinner, the big dinner where everything goes down and he has a run in with the, yeah. the Grey King again at the dinner. And there's just this huge gap in what you could consider the rising So it is action. a momentum killer. it's a momentum killer what i thought when i was reading it i was like this would be a great short story about 
Locke Lamore. Like if Scott Lynch uh, were to just drop just to drop a short story in an anthology or something like, oh, like you can read about just a random uh, con that Locke pulled off. It is a good I, it would con, be really entertaining. Like it was an entertaining yeah. con. Right. But it just cuts into the like you said, the rising action and the way that's yeah not it's not the strongest part of the book even though it's also good in itself just the timing and the pacing of it but anyway that's uh let's let's jump back to some of the the better moments uh and then we can see if we if we want to jump back a little earlier in the book because something that sticks out to me Mm -hmm. early on i love the way that scott lynch builds up kappa barsavi where he tells that whole Mm. story about the carpet where it's like uh, you, you remember this Charles? Yes. Where, yeah so Kappa Barsavi the uh, like lord of the underworld basically in the in Kamor he has this carpet that's like this really nice carpet and he's in the process of eliminating all his enemies in the underworld and his uh, like rise to true power and he'll have people come over for like dinner or whatever he says and if the carpet wasn't laid out you knew he was just gonna kill everyone because (laughs) it's like oh he didn't log his carpet all messed up so then people learn about that they send spies to figure out like oh is the carpet down or is it uh, (laughs) up and then finally what he does is he just leaves the carpet down he invites like all his biggest enemies and then he just slaughters them and gets the carpet completely messed up (laughs) and it's like another like show don't tell moment where it's like oh that's actually really smart that he did that and it builds his character as this just ruthless almost mastermind and i think that's something that Scott Lynch does really well as he can build up characters like that. And then it makes it even more impressive when the Grey King topples him and you get this moment where Barsavi is like, just like crying at the Grey King's feet. And then he gets him like eaten by a shark. It's like, oh, (laughs) crap. Like, this is like the big fish just ate the little fish, both literally and figuratively. (laughs) Well, I guess not literally. Copper is not fish, but uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but he, he did get eaten by a big fish. Yes, he did. <laughs> there was some poetic yeah, justice uh, to that, right? And then it's like, oh wow! So this guy is even more dangerous than Kappa Barsavi, who's built up like such a a foe in the right. beginning. I I agree, and it makes those moments at the end, like those plot points, those twists that much more fascinating because you you also meet Kappa Barsavi and, you know, Locke enters the room he's been summoned and he's just, in, like, interrogating people and killing them. And it's very clear that everyone he's interrogating has no idea what he's talking about and he's just killing them anyway and feeding them to the fish. And it's very violent. Yeah. And then he's like, I want you to court my daughter. And you're like, oh, man, this guy is, is like... <laughs> in the thick of it now like what is he gonna do in this predicament and then like a chapter or two later it's like oh she's dead now <laughs> she's she's totally gone and you're like whoa what a what a departure this has taken and then like a great that's a great entrance for the gray king as well leading up to him actually like pulling one on kappa barsavi it's that that, the, that whole all those twists and turns at the end um caught me by surprise like i was pretty impressed by them actually 
Yeah, I'll say though it it is like the classic woman women in refrigerators, but I guess in this case it's like women in a barrel filled with horse piss, <laughs> um, <laughs> like trope that I and this was written a long time ago before people were or not long long time ago, but two thousand six did we early two thousands yeah this? it was like I think it was two thousand six. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. June before, 2006. Maybe we're talking about this. And I'll say there are there are multiple strong female characters in this book. So it's not like uh, it's something that is like horrible, I think, but it, that's not the strongest moment, but what it does do for the Grey King and how it serves uh, his plot is impressive. So and what it does from a yeah. plot point, too, it keeps you, the reader, guessing. Because he literally put all this time yes. into setting up this scenario of, uh-oh, Locke, all of a sudden his notoriety, his star is rising, people are paying attention yeah. to him, and now he's got to court the daughter of Kappa Barsavi and potentially be, like, a counsel yeah. to the next Kappa, you know? And, like, they so much time spent in building it up with that whole conversation just to pull the rug out from all of it. Be like, uh, no, we're not doing that. You know, she's right. dead now. Which was... And they even built Nazca's character from the moment where Locke was little and went yes. to see Kappa Barsavi. So you really do think she's going to be this right. big character. So, yeah, the the twist is good. It's I don't want to get down on that. Mm-hmm. Um and there's also, like, oh, by the way, I really enjoy how Kappa Barsavi's take on Locke is, like, you're this, like, really cautious, like, uh, put-together guy. Like, we need someone like that around my sons because they're <laughs> a little too rash. And I forget the word he keeps using to describe Locke, but it's basically like circumspect it's like oh yeah you're you're this really cautious guy because Locke just has everyone completely fooled as to who he is they think he's in this like lower level this humble thieving crew like that picks pockets or something yeah right doesn't take too many risks but like always shows up on time to pay their dues, which are just like a tiny fraction of what they're actually making. Right. But right. Papa Barsavi doesn't know that. And he's like, so, I can tell you guys are honest because sometimes you give more, sometimes you give yeah. less. And it's like, well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're just good at being dishonest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I mean, those are, those are some wonderful moments and really great just – setups payoffs throughout the whole thing the plotting i I have to say is is pretty excellent i know a lot of people when they talk about this book talk about the use of interludes and and Mm. the going back and forth in time and i you know but it wasn't that long ago that i also was like oh the time jump thing like I was the first to criticize it, but Mark Lawrence kind of talked me out of it. You know, I just got to say, when we, you know, interviewed him a while back and he, um, you know, we asked him about it. He said some pretty interesting stuff about how POV is really good for character work. And it's instead of like having multiple POVs, it can offer, I think is, here's his quote. It can offer a very separate story while illuminating your characters. So, in that sense, the time jumps do that perfectly. It's like you get those interludes of like he steals too much and then you're in the future. And then you have yeah. that flashback where it's like, oh, you have to 
like you have to I forget what it was when he first meets Kappa Barsavi and has to like swallow like put the shark's tooth in his mouth yeah. and all of that and he pledges his allegiance to um the daughter right so like they they mm-hmm. said and then cut to the next scene of like him meeting her and then she dies moments later so it's like all this great character work is happening and it pays off in ways that we don't expect and i don't know i mean to me it was a really fascinating read and it breaks it up it makes it very readable and digestible and you need you know things when you need to know them i i was all on board I'm glad you enjoyed that. I think when I recommended it way back to you, that was one of the things that gave me a little bit of, made me want to give a little bit of caution right. about it. But you've really come around on your take <laughs> on, ever since Mark Lawrence told you this uh, this whole, oh, it's kind of like multiple POVs thing. It's You've really changed your tune. So. Yeah, I think it's cool because you do get these moments that you are foreshadowed well and mm-hmm. are played with, like the oh, uh, like I don't have to be able to beat you; I just have to be able to hold you until Jean comes. Yeah, like, yeah, that's exactly. a great one. And he does he learn. Does that I mean, he managed to learn some lessons, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and there's a great quote about that too that I don't have in front of me, but it, when he. Uh, when he's killing the guy who had the crossbow, who was like waiting after um, after Bug and the Sansa twins get killed, there's like a guy with a crossbow and just says one thing because he's like one arrow because he's just waiting for Jean because mm-hmm. they thought they drowned Locke in, uh, uh, the barrel. in the barrel of horse piss. <laughs> and then they both come back. They end up killing the guy and he's like, when you meet your maker, like... Uh, and he's like, uh, he says something along the lines of like, uh, and you see your like friends there. It's like, let them know that Locke learns slowly, but he learns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, <Right>. So he <laughs> does. That. He does eventually. Yeah. There's some core characteristics he'll never unlearn, but he, and he, he did. Picks up it, on a few things. He learned that lesson at a pretty hard cost. I'll say too. <laughs> it's true. Losing and everyone. Can, while we're on it. Charles, mm. can we talk about that moment? Because that moment where they come back and the Sansa twins are mm. dead and then Bug is not dying. far behind. Mm. Yeah, like, it, you know, someone's going to die because the guy's still got a crossbow bolt and, and ends up being poor Bug. Who I, I love Bug. Bug is but great. He wasn't long for this world. Yeah, there's another fantastic quote I don't have in front of me, but is along the lines of where, like, uh, Bug, where Bug jumps off the the tower and he's like it's like with all the like knowledge from his 12 years of life that he like <laughs> that injury and death were things that happened to other people not bug yes 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 <laughs> yes i remember that dude scott lynch so good so <laughs> anyway yeah so uh when everyone dies in that scene, for me, that is like the pivotal moment that defined my first read of The Lies of Locke Lamora, where I was like, oh, this is what we're dealing with here. Like, this author is not afraid to kill his characters, and he's willing to really go there. And right. I just didn't, I never thought that most of the thieving crew would be dead by the end of the book, especially because I knew there were sequels. Right. And you just think, you just think, oh, they're 
Hulkers going to be there. Maybe they'll lose one or something. Maybe Bug dies, but not not. And Asana it's not Twins even just the Bug. loss of all those characters. It's the loss of their temple too. It's like all the money's gone. Yeah, the temple's broken, shattered, like literally lost everything. It's such a huge loss, and it works so well because it comes off a moment of Locke like seemingly getting away with it and we've been told this whole time Locke you're playing with fire you're like you're you're risking too much this that and the other and multiple times this has happened to him and it's like this is something Scott Lynch was telling us over and over and over again and I I even remember talking to him like I like I have a feeling that this heist is not gonna go over well after (laughs) Well, you said you it was like a brilliant text you sent to me i you know i had to play it cool but you were like uh, you were picking up on this pattern where you're like i'm feeling this heist isn't gonna go so well and you're like every time that Locke tries to pull some giant maneuver like people end up dead you yeah. said something like that yeah. And Everyone gets. I killed. was like, "Wow, that is." Yeah, you're like. I was like, "You weren't just like it goes awry." You're like, "People end up dead." Yeah. So I was like, "That's that's a good call, Charles." But were you expecting that? And level even still, of- yeah, like the the violation of it, I, I think, it yeah. is what's so impactful. One, I was not expecting them all to die. I mean, certainly, you know, it's a, uh, people die, but I could have never predicted that. But I knew that he was. Like, this heist was going to end poorly because it's called The Lies of Locke Lamora, and we've spent so much time talking about how he keeps messing up over and over and over. But it's, I was not ready for that, and I wasn't ready for just the pure, like, it. even though he is a thief, there's the injustice of it, and there's the violation of it, and the Bonds Mage who, not even through any cunning or skill, he can just like manipulate people through magic i think that's another part that eats away a lock too it's not like he was outwitted it's just this guy can with your name stop you in your tracks and cut you to pieces while you're standing there you know and he can find you and and he only needs one person so I, i think all that stuff's stacks and stacks and stacks and that moment just the impact of that it is so strong It really is. And you said the word violation and it made me think part of why this hits so hard is Scott Lynch's choice to make the Sansa twins deaths off screen, off page, if you will, Mm. where that's very unusual to kill that. I don't know if main the character is the right word, but that important those that important of a character. Oh, uh, sure. To kill to kill two characters at that level off the page and just have our characters come back and see both of their throats are slit. Mm -hmm. It's like you're used to, if you get a main character death, you're used to the build up to it, right? Like, Oh, and then they were fighting and you're like, uh Oh, they might actually lose this fight. And then maybe they do and they die. But the violation of coming back to two Sansa twins uh, with both of their throats slit so brutal. is just brutal. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it, it's a great scene, and it's one of those things where it's like somehow Locke always manages to survive, but it's the people around him that kind of not necessarily pay the price because they're all complicit in it. But it's still like he was in charge of them; it was his idea; it's his plan. 
and just he he survives for whatever reason. And it reminds me of a quote where you know Bug did something stupid, and he's like, "Oh, I I, I pulled a I pulled a lock, and it's like only lock can pull a lock. Like where other people would die, he stays alive." And then the Sons of Twins are speculating. It's like because we think the gods are saving him up for a really big death, something with knives and hot irons. And the other twin comes in and is like, and fifty thousand cheering spectators. Where it's like this is a guy who's just <laughs> stacking up grievance after grievance after grudge after grudge and he just keeps hustling at the cost of stacking that tower ever higher and it's like how how messed up can his situation get before he loses it all and he'll just keep stacking those cards doesn't know any other way yeah this book is so quotable i (laughs) I mean we should just do an explicit just quote sharing episode (laughs) Oh, that would be good. I'd actually really like to do that. And, <laughs> oh my, yeah. And that's one of the first. Uh, that's one of the earlier quotes with this theme of Locke. He's getting away with things, but eventually, this is all going to add up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he didn't quite get his in the way of he didn't get killed, but he mm-hmm. got his in the way that uh, Locke cares so much about his crew that. I mean, he probably would have rather died himself than oh, for what sure. happened. Yeah. For sure. Like, and that's the compassionate thing about him. Even when it was a bunch of nobles or a bunch of his random Pete, like classmates, I'm calling them classmates, but I mean, they were just a bunch of orphans in a graveyard. Yeah. Um, he didn't want any of them to get killed. Even the, like, the worst among them, the bullies, uh, he's just like, no, they're... Like, I'm not here to kill people. I, I love the game, you know? And yeah. I, I just want to keep playing at higher and higher levels. And he just hasn't recognized the cost of that. And this kind of homage is to that. It's like, he keeps stacking up. Uh, they're saving him up for something really big, the gods. He's going to get killed in a spectacular right. way with thousands of people cheering you know he, he hasn't quite gotten there yet and i think the end of this book is just another like it's another couple thousand people that are going to cheer his death at some point when he gets there um so yeah it's just a <laughs> incredible quote and just another kind of ominous thing about the kind of the tragedy of of Locke's character i suppose and that he lost everything in that moment at the temple and to, with the temple shattered after they like Scott Lynch wrote all these beautiful dinner scenes and yeah. like, described all this stuff and like how painstaking Father Chains went to build this secret place that no one knows about and this bond mage just comes in and corrupts all of it. It's it's a uh, it's a tough loss. I, I missed that. Pl- I, I I missed that place. The temple. It seemed like a really like nice homey place and now that Locke has nothing to lose now it's like what is he how much further is he gonna go so yeah it's uh it's a good question I mean that's uh I know we're <laughs> I don't know past the third book obviously the fourth is is in a situation where we don't know when it's coming although Scott Lynch did relatively recently say he's finally been able to get back to writing right in the past like in the month or so he says he's yeah. been like flirting with getting back in and everything and that was very exciting to see i got a lot of messages after that happened 
<laughs> and well, we, we you were already planning on reading it right yeah. about that. It was like yeah. right when you were about to start reading it, I think. So I don't know, Charles. Maybe there's just some good this, juju around you. You know, when I it comes to think you there and is reading. Dylan. I like that theory. Uh, <laughs> I'll take some credit for that. <laughs> sure, yeah, why not? So if you're happy that Scott Lynch is getting back into writing Gentleman Bastard stuff, you have Charles to thank. Well, he picked a great time because I only just have started getting into it. I've got two more books to go and there's so many more after that and yeah, you know, I'm ready for it. So hopefully he's feeling up to cranking that book out. But, you know, in your own time, you know, when they're ready. Right. And while we're on the topic of future books, Charles, let me bring up a character that did not make an appearance in this uh, book actually on the page. Yeah. And that character is Sabatha, who's mm-hmm. mentioned over and over again. What we do know at this point is that she's some almost long lost love now of mm-hmm. uh, of Locke's, where she's... They keep saying, like, thousands of miles away. We know she was part of the thieving crew at one point. And that's uh, and we know that she has red hair. That's pretty much mm. what we know about her. But she's, yeah, she's mentioned a lot. There's something I found very, I guess, odd about the book when I first read mm-hmm. it. Like, he's very restrained with the Sabbatha character. And you can tell he's really building her up. But right. Yeah, what'd you, what'd you think reading it for the first time? I thought it was interesting. I kept wondering how Sabatha was going to play into this, because Father Trains originally was like, and then there's Sabatha, who's off learning her own trades right now. And you know, they all go off and learn stuff. So you're like, okay, but she's been gone this whole time. And then later in the book, um, between Locke and, and Jean, they talk about, like they allude to like a romance that potentially yeah. may or may not have happened um, with Locke and, and Sabatha. So to me, it's it, it made it feel like that there's more story than this one book. It's kind of an interesting way to kind of build this world and his overarching um, plan for this for these characters. So it's like, oh, well, she's not someone you want to forget about. There's a larger story that's coming. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's unusual, but uh, I'm for it, you know? Yeah. So Sabatha is one of those characters that's very controversial in the... Mm. She didn't even do anything. (laughs) Well, the gentleman bastard space. I mean, I don't want to... She becomes more controversial. In terms of the fan base, the, mm. it's like a, it's, it's, I would say the only thing I could compare it to, although it's on a lower level, um, in terms of how much people talk about it mm. is actually Denna from oh, the King Killer Chronicles. It's like, and that's, you know, Charles talked about how his online identity has been like, interwoven with not having read Lies Lacamora. Mine for a long time, a little less so lately, just because we haven't been doing a lot of Kingkiller right. uh, content, I think. But right. uh, for a long time, I was like the guy who defends Denna from Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicle. Um, so I, I, I can't get too much into Denna or Sabatha right now, just from <laughs> a, a spoiler territory. But I'll say that the fan base is very split on Sabatha, and as a uh, the reception of it and some of my thoughts on it reminds me of the controversy around Denna from the King Killer Chronicles. So I'll say no more. 
but interesting well well yeah. you know i'm looking forward to the greater world of uh the gentleman bastards and uh that just seems like another character like another piece on the board for future stories so you know i, I love me a good controversy especially when it comes to characters so i'm i'm all for that um yeah. Before we wrap up here, do we want to talk about like the ending a little bit more? I feel like there's a whole like we talked about that pivotal scene where Locke loses everything, but then there's the whole part at the end with um Caparaza and you have the Duke of Camor, yeah. you have the spider, like you have all of these things uh going on at the end, which we alluded to a little bit, but I wanted to get your sense on like how the ending of this book felt to you and your, your thoughts on it. Yeah, I really like the ending. Mm-hmm. I really like the way that all of it t- ties together because there's times where uh, you've got uh, like the Don Salvara stuff where, where I'm like, okay, is this even relevant anymore? Right. Like, why is this right. still here? But it actually, there's a a good job where everyone's actually at the party and all of these plot lines start weaving together where actually you had the gray king trying to take revenge on the nobles Mm -hmm. and you get this sort of dream team team up between uh, the spider of Camor. that's uh danya i might butcher this angevesta vorcenza and then also, oh, the Don and Donya Salvara, and they're mm-hmm. all working together. So it's kind of fun to see where Locke goes back in. He's all tied up, and <laughs> you've got them like, I don't believe a word you say. Like, Conte says to him something along the lines of, he's like, I wouldn't believe you if you told me my name was Conte. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. but Locke is trying to convince also remember, them. Yeah, like, I gotta just shout out one of my favorite moments yeah. where the spider, like before all this, the spider's got Locke captured. It's like, you're not going anywhere. I have the antidote and you're going to give me the answers. Oh, and then he just punches yes. her in the face. She's this old lady, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a and great moment. It's like... I love that. Yeah, go on, I'm go like, on. how many times have I rooted for this to happen in other books and it never happens? Like, when the villain is just explaining his plans the whole time and you're like, do something! Like, this was one of those great moments where it was like... Um, kind of reminded me of Heroes Die, where it's like the best time to to attack someone is right in the middle of them talking. And that's what Locke does. He just like sucks her right in the face, takes the antidote and then jumps out the window onto the elevator. <laughs> it's insane. Insane. And then he, right. so then he comes back, back into the scene you're talking about. And then, so not only did he like lose all good faith with everyone, he's <laughs> has to now negotiate with the spider who <laughs> just got punched in the face. Yes, and she's under a spell. But you, yeah, just want to say too that moment is so amazing because it's it. just like she's and there's like speculation kind of in Locke's head about like, well, maybe she's just not used to dealing with the kind of people who would punch an old lady in the face. But like, <laughs> she did not really think that part through as an option. So yeah, awesome moment. And then yeah, to see him having to try to negotiate with these people now, and then they're trying to basically work together to stop the Grey King's plan, and then uh, kill the Grey King is uh, is just really fun and. Mm. I feel like the 
fight scenes toward the end. Like you get Jean against the uh, twins and Mm -hmm. it's actually extremely well written. Like that's something I kind of really appreciate on this reread that I might not have before, which is Scott Lynch writes action really well, Mm -hmm. even though there's not a ton in here. Uh, So I love those the scenes where Jean uh, kills the twins, and then the I also sisters. Yeah, the Bronges sisters, uh, and then also we get the fight scene between Locke and the Grey King, which is right. a f- fantastic scene. And we know one of the things I love about Locke is he's a flawed character, and he's not a great fighter, and he's right. he would lose in a fair fight to the Grey King. But he uses his wit to actually <laughs> trick the Grey King by being like, I just have to hold you until, lock, until Jean gets here. And then he like flicks a coin, I think it is, just to make a sound over the other way. Right. And it just gets that moment where the Grey King turns and then Locke stabs him. Right. And it's just a, I love, I love the fight scene and it's so true to the character. It's like he doesn't win because he's a good fighter. He wins because he doesn't fight fair. So right. love the end. Right, yeah. and then he does a like in both of those fight scenes. I think another layer to what made the fight scene both of them so good was that he's been setting them up like from the beginning yeah. of the book. It's like we've seen, uh, we've seen Jean get the best training a fighter can get, and not just mm-hmm. like fencing training. The guy's like, I'm going to teach you how to kill a guy with a sword. Like that's the oh, like yeah. that that distinction there. But well, with hatchets, with hatchets, yeah. right, right. I just remember that yeah. line. I thought was great from the Rose. There, I yeah. forget his name. Um, and then you have the sisters who are like the gladiator champions and and are doing right. all these like incredible things. And then the reveal that they're actually sisters to mm-hmm. the Grey King was a fun little twist also. But so that they're set up and they're like kind of almost evenly matched in some ways and like the fight got messy and it, yeah, it was just good. And then, you know, we obviously got that whole scene where Jean like defeated an old gang by just holding out for for uh i mean Locke was holding out for jean to appear and beat up the other yeah. gang member and he's doing the same thing and even you as the reader is like is is jean really gonna pop in here right now like even in that <laughs> moment you're, you're not quite sure what's yeah. going on and that's when Locke gives that finishing blow which you know very well done i feel like it's hard when you're at the end of a book and you're at that culminating scene to surprise readers it's like you genuinely don't know which way the outcome is going to go and how it's going to go down and but it was all set up and paid off really well it just he managed to know what cards he was working with and was able to surprise us still at the end so that's something that i greatly appreciated from scott lynch in those final well said charles yeah and I'll say I also like the Grey King as a villain. Mm-hmm. Not just that they do that good job of building him up almost through building up Capo Barsavi. Right. But that he's he's one of those villains. I think the best villains are the ones where you understand that their motive, like their motivation and all this stuff, you know, his parents and siblings were brutally murdered by Capo Barsavi and we get that reminder that's like Capo Barsavi's a terrible person yes like we yes (laughs) that's what what the great yeah what the great king did to 
Barsavi is no worse than Bar- what Barsavi would do to anyone that got in his way. So we don't have to necessarily feel that bad for Barsavi and all of this. No. It's just that our, you know, our wonderful gentleman bastards got caught up in this feud in a way that we do feel bad for like Nicolo and Galdo. Right. And, and that's almost but, another piece of it where it's like, man, these people you're all wrapped up in, they don't even like matter all that much. They're horrible yeah. people. And you still got thrown into the middle of it, you know, so. Right. Yeah. And I'll say, anyway, about the great king as a villain, I think the best villains, you know their motivation, but they are going too far with it. Like, they're not just evil for the sake of being evil. They're, they become the villain because something just pushed them over the edge. And you're like, I don't know, maybe if that happened to me, I would, like, want similar things. I mean, I'd like to think I'd never want to, like, murder all those people but you get the point if someone you've no bombs that kill every noble person in the city yeah well gentles them which is almost like turns them into walking yeah walking zombies almost but yeah it's like i see where you're coming from this is just not the way to go about this is uh is a good villain i feel like so love the gray king as a villain and also yeah i just find it really interesting from the from the perspective of this constantly underestimated bit that it's like the people who end up taking down the gray king are the gentleman bastards like lock lamora and they're almost if you think from the gray king's perspective they're like an afterthought in his (laughs) original plan he was like oh i'll just get the guy who's like really good at acting Mm. and has a lot of money like i'll get him to play me in this ruse i'll kill him off and then kind of like kill off his crew whatever but and i'll take their money because you know, I need to pay for this bonds mage. But the main part of his plan had nothing to do with the gentleman bastards. They were no, just kind of pawns in this whole thing. And then it's interesting from that underestimated place that it's like it's Locke Lamora and the gentleman bastards who end up taking this guy down when the what he probably thought was the hardest part of his plan, taking down <laughs> Barsavi, right. was completely accomplished. And he also would have accomplished the gentling the nobles thing if it weren't for Locke. So Absolutely. It. Yeah, it's just interesting to think that our villain's main, like, the main antagonist to the villain, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, if we're in the Grey King's head, is, like, Kappa Barsavi, and then he's taken down by someone he wasn't right. even really thinking And it was about. Locke willing to risk his own life and his own heist to, to get to him also, like, that conscious yeah. choice through compassion that was he was able to pull it off, too. Which I thought was a nice touch, and then of course, and vengeance, mostly vengeance, vengeance, mostly vengeance. Yeah, (laughs) Um, and then we get that lovely scene at the end where um, where the spider realizes that the treasure was in the ship the whole time. Yeah, (laughs) which I was. I love that. I was always on the fence about that. I was like, he kind of was like, oh, and also, you want to sink that ship. And then the ship goes down, and the fact that it was a death offering I thought was really great because it's like, yeah, you. it was four or five people, but it was the people that you really, you know, yeah. your family that you're paying for. And, you know, you essentially got them killed. So, like, I don't even, even know if all that money is enough, but it, it was just, you know, part of Locke's can't help himself 
gotta pull off a con even when he is like so lucky to even be let go by the spider in that original moment where he's like oh you also have to promise me you'll sink the ships where it's like you're still trying to pull a heist in those final moments (laughs) in Locke's defense he's a priest and he takes this very seriously Mm -hmm. like the death offering aspect of it so that was I don't think that was just pure Locke not being able to I mean, help he himself. Could I think still, that was like, that was owe the money as a death offering. Him. You know, he, he risked a lot to sink that ship, as he always does. Yes and no. I I mean, it doesn't it it doesn't seem as much just Locke being brazen for the sake of it as some other things. Like it has more. I mean, you have to admit though, it's to it, flashy and has some style. Oh, yeah. Like, well, you know. yeah, that's Locke. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that's all. It's like he had to go but, for the style yeah. points uh, on top of he like, did. On top of like yeah. winning wasn't enough. So Locke does love style points. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And that's another moment of it. And part of the style points of it, too, is that he tells them that the money is actually buried under like tons of crap. <laughs> so. <laughs> So then they're just digging through crap to to try to get their money. So it's like, and so those are style points as well. And perhaps that was even more like just style points for the sake of it, because he could have said the money was anywhere, but he says under a bunch of crap. So that's, uh, that's lock for you. (laughs) And he does, yeah, he does tell Jean, I believe that, He's like, oh, I realize before all this, he's like, oh, I realize they've been taking all of our money out to that ship. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're reading it, it and it, it's kind of confusing because he tells Jean that thing and then he acts like he just had like an epiphany right. when he's talking to the spider and all them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wait, is it on the ship? Is it not on the ship? And then it's on the ship. <laughs> so love that. And, oh, and also I wanted to mention, I was moving a little bit away from the ending, but I'll say, a, well, not a little bit, a lot away from the ending, <laughs> but I'll say that something I noticed in this read of, okay. of the book is Lynch does a little bit further away from the character's point of view and even does some head hopping. Like he doesn't do the like... George R. R. Martin, Joe Abercrombie style mm. of point of view writing, like the third person limited. He doesn't do it to the same extent. He's almost like halfway between third person limited and third person omniscient, it feels like. Like, yeah. it, do you notice that head hopping and stuff yeah, at all? I did notice he was not afraid to change POVs because, you know, coming from something like Game of Thrones or. Uh, first law the pov is like a sacred thing i mean abercrombie does play around with that quite a bit but he always keeps the pov kind of sacred and then you have this and it's like we're just we're going with it we're flowing we're free flowing and i was totally okay with it like you know it's one of those he's got a lot of great characters and i don't think he ever sacrificed the characterization for things like I have to tell the plot from in, in sequential order, and I have to like stop the chapter and start yeah. a new one to get the new POV. It's like, no, whatever I'm in the mood to tell right now, I'm just going to tell. I'm going to tell it as it serves the character and what's happening in this scene I'm trying to build. And I appreciated that. It, it, as a yeah. reader, you're like, 
I know what I need to know and I can keep going and I can just enjoy the moment that I'm in. And, and that's in fantasy, that's kind of a rare thing. Yeah, it's not something you can always yeah. afford to do with these big fantasy series. So I was okay with it. Right. That's good to hear. I was okay with it too. It just was interesting as someone who's read a lot more fantasy now than when I first read the Gentleman Bastard sequence where I was like, oh, wow, this is an unusual way to use a third person point of view compared to most fantasy these days. And I will but, say, yeah. you know, I'll give a little FTF sneak peek here at the very end of the episode. Here. I did crack the cover on the first couple pages of the fifth season. Oh, and that oh just, of the fifth season. And that just takes narration oh. and throws it out the window. Well, second person. Yes, yeah, and Second then person and then sometimes it goes you are this person you're doing this well that's yeah that. that's the second that's yeah, the second here's person. this person the... he does that to him and it's like verb tenses i have never considered before it's like a uh, it's like a, so you know i'm all i'm down for all of it it's like whatever you need to do to tell the story let's let's get weird with it i'm cool <laughs> <laughs> i'm not saying. yeah well good to be flexible like that Mm. Uh, Charles you told me before we record this episode that you had some hot takes about the Jean and Locke relationship and I want to make sure we get into that before we close the episode out because you didn't even really explain them to me because you you wanted to save it for the episode right so So, okay one of the things that I was told over and over again about the Lies of Locke Lamora. And this was even, I would joke and I would recommend this book to people having never read it and said, oh, Locke and Jean, best duo in fantasy. And like, I got told that a lot. I told that to other people. You know, I've recommended this book countless times and I've never read it. So um, based off of that and reading this book, it's like, I get that they're have this history and that they're like brothers and they do have a great relationship but i would even argue that they're not even a duo in this book and they're certainly not better than like royce and adrian of um from right from right here revelations by michael soul by michael j sullivan correct so which to me still stands atop the duo list with like you know your classics your marion pippins and all that stuff sam and frodo's and all those other classic duos but to me Locke and john i even think to call them a duo until the very end is a bit generous hot take no i understand yeah well i understand that i I would say that they are a duo, even in this book, but part of it is the Gentleman Bastards. There's five of them at the start of the book. Mm-hmm. I, and if you don't count Sabatha, you gotta to six, count Sabatha. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a bunch of them, and Locke and Jean, you can tell, are the two, are two. Well, I, I was. I probably wouldn't even say they are the two closest, actually, because Kahlo and... Yeah, so the Sansa Twins are probably closer (laughs) just because they're basically the same person. Uh, But, yeah, anyway, you can tell that Locke and Jean have a special relationship, and you do get the backstory of when Locke didn't like Jean at first, and then Jean 
hit lock and they kind of came to understand each other. So you get moments like that. And then, of Mm -hmm. course, at the end, you really get the now it's just Locke and Jean. So you get more of these duo moments Mm -hmm. and you get the flashback with the like, I just have to hold you until Jean comes, that kind of stuff. So I, I think I'd be definitely willing to call them a duo in this, but I see where you're coming from. And it was actually illuminating for me on the reread where I was like, oh, wow, really all the maybe not all, but the majority of the best moments of Locke and John as a duo come after this book, because this book sets us up where all the other gentlemen bastards are dead and we're just taking off in a ship with just Locke and Jean. So from here on out, there's going to be a lot of time just spent <laughs> between those two. Right. And yeah, it's it's interesting. It's really way more of a like an ensemble cast right. rather than a like main two in this one. So I see where you're coming from, Charles, and I think you'll you'll get a lot more pushback from people who've read all three of the books right. than you will from people who've right. only read the Lies I see, of Lamora. I see that the stage is set for them to be an iconic duo, and they certainly have a great chemistry. I, I think their scenes together are great. I see that they have a strong connection. But I also see, okay, now it's just the two of them. Now they're together. Now they're off on an adventure. Like That's kind of how this book ends. So I can see how yeah. that would pick up in future books. It's just one of those things that I was looking for. And I'm like, I don't know, guys. I'm like three quarters of the way into this book. And yeah, Jean stands out. But they're all still rolling. They're all still in the mix. And then they weren't in the mix shortly afterwards. So it's like, <laughs> I get it now. I get it. And of course, it was right. the fact that it was interesting how... Locke uses like his trust in Jean to kind of trick the Grey King at the end, you know. But it, mm. it was still because of that that it was able to work, because of their connection that it was able to work. So, all in all, great duo. Um, but I can see where the best is yet to come for, in terms of their relationship mm-hmm. and to cement them in that best duo of all time category. Certainly not their at the end of this book for me but still great characters i hear you charles appreciate that i hear you and i do think most folks who have reread the lies of Locke lamora relatively recently uh even if they've read the whole thing like meaning the whole series or folks who've only read the lies of Locke lamora i i think they'll be cool with what you just Mm. said you might get some folks (laughs) i think they're great characters like read the whole series yeah, but I'm gonna take yeah, the but best duo of all time. Questioning the seriously. sanctity. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, <laughs> questioning the sanctity of the Locke and Jean relationship mm. is just treacherous ground to be walking. Mm. I'm, I'm cool with it, <laughs> and I do think when we, I assume it's gonna be another decade or so before I can convince you to read Red Seas Under Red Skies, Book Two of the Gentleman Bastard sequence. That doesn't have the I'm same ring any... to it as. Uh, make him read Lies of Locke Lamora, but we'll see. Okay, so you're not even going to be like, oh no, Dylan, it's not going to be another decade. I I will read that soon. You're gonna you're gonna just sit there. 
like this right now. Well, I will say it's not on my radar right now, but I would like to oh read my, it. Uh, I would like to read it. It's not on your radar? How's it on your radar? We're trying to relaunch. You know it's not on my radar. We decided on a on a reading schedule for the next, like, two months. It's set in stone. Uh, yeah, okay, but radar, I feel like... You know, if you go on people's Goodreads in this community, everyone's got like 300 books on their want to read Oh, list. yeah, it's, it's on the want to so, read It's got to be on the radar, you know? It's on the want radar to Radar makes read it sound list. like it's not on your immediate TBR, is what you're saying. I'm definitely saying that, yes. I don't have an yeah. actual time planned in which I will sit down and read it. There's so many books we want to read, but I do want to read it. Um, I'm not feeling rushed to read it because... This series has a long ways to go, so I'll get around to it. There's so many other fantastic series and authors out there that we have not experienced and discussed. But, man, I, I'm i looking forward to the day where I do read that the next book because I was highly entertained by The Lies of Locke Lamora, yes. and I love the character work that was done in this book, and I'm ready for more of these characters you know they're kind of like unbridled by all the backstory and stuff now they're like free to go on an adventure and i'm sure there's more you to might them. think so <laughs> <laughs> but there might be a lot more interludes <laughs> in your future charles oh when you do get around to it well maybe i and should I, just I check will it out then <laughs> but <laughs> i will say that I do think the Lies of Locke Lamora is the best of that's what I've the heard. trilogy. That's pretty much I'm a unanimous. Far from the only one. Yeah. yeah, I do think I would say so far, each book has been a bit of a step down from the previous one. But when you're starting as high up as we're starting <clears throat> right. with the Lies of Locke Lamora, even taking a step down from there, they're all great books. Right. So right. I and that's kind of the unanimous of thing that I've heard. And even if the book. Like, going into it knowing it's not living up to the reputation of the first one, I'm still okay with that. I mean, it's, like, the guy has a voice like no one else I've read, and he's got a sense of humor Mm -hmm. so in line with my own that I'm going to read whatever he writes. So, definitely going to read it. Even though I don't have any immediate plans to pick it up, it will be read at some point. It's it's on the list. Um, Fantastic. But, but like, before we wrap it all up, I just got to say, like, Comeback week has come to a close. It's like we're in the middle of it right now, and we're just enjoying the idea of being back, and we're looking at regularly releasing episodes again. And it won't be it won't be five a week. That is for sure, um, <laughs> Dylan. I'm not sure how much we want to get into right now, but all I can say is like, look out for weekly content. Right, like an episode a week is the goal. Yeah. Yeah, should be an episode a week, and we're excited to be back. It's been so cool how the community has welcomed us back. I, I'm i going to be honest, when we went on hiatus, and it had been months and months, I mean, we were on hiatus for eight months or something like that, Charles. Maybe I, longer, yeah. It's been a while. We were releasing monthly episodes for the Chathron Voyage, but... Outside of that, we weren't releasing episodes, and we went on hiatus. We like interviewed late... Sarah during it, too. Right, but right. But it was probably just so those... like Late summer anyway. last year, we went on hiatus, and then, like, all winter, <laughs> and then, like, everything, yeah. we were gone. I think it was September. Okay. September, because I think we did the Abercrombie interview in September. 
September, if I'm remembering correctly. So, it's like, yeah, almost 10 months. Maybe really late August. Anyway, yeah. So it's been a long time. And my point is, I was convinced everyone was going to forget about us. <laughs> like, But we've been so lucky that everyone's welcomed us back and been so kind. So uh, if you're one of the folks who's been interacting with us on social media or just anyone who's listening to these episodes and like cares enough to incredible like we're over an hour and a half into this to still be listening i mean thank you so much we're so excited to be back and we've got a lot more that we're super pumped uh in store for you soon so that's right yeah that's right we're We're gonna be bouncing around series guys we're not gonna be like reading through a whole body of work like we used to set out to do we're gonna hop around a little bit but this just means more books and more authors in a faster amount of time so we're pretty excited about that i'm feeling a lot of good energy you know we went on hiatus to kind of recalibrate and and get the inspiration back and i and i think the hunger's back the excitement's back i'm like right. it's been a while since the two of us sat down together for an episode we've always had the guests or guests with us and it just feels good man I'm, I'm feeling good i feel like i'm still getting into the motions of it just being the two of us but you know i had a lot of fun this was a great book to come back to such a easy book to talk about for an hour and a half because it's just so many yeah. moments to to celebrate and to to talk about that you know this, this has been a lot of fun for sure i've had a blast chatting with my friend charles mm-hmm. i'm so happy that charles <laughs> has finally read this book i've been recommending to him I for a decade i had to enlist it's still three more like two or three more days before we announce this to the public mm. and I don't know what will become of me after that. You know, so much of my online persona is tied into this book that I feel like we're we're not only closing a chapter like in friends talking fantasy history because I feel like comeback week is ending. We've read Lies of Lacamora. Like what's next? You know, the great beyond for yeah. FTF. It's the same mm-hmm. thing for like us personally now on on. And, and the way we communicate uh, over in the Twitter sphere, it's like, what's the next thing that's going to catch on? We'll have to wait and see. But uh, I'm excited to share this with the with the community, with the world, and um, I'm looking forward to the future of this show. It's looking very bright. I think the next thing to catch on will be the food pictures that I post <laughs> on my personal mm. account at Dylan R. Oh, Marsh. That's enough of that. Find me I, over I, I there. I think we've kind of I post some great food pictures. All of our t- conversation around <laughs> lies of Loch Lamora. For now, rest assured, more conversation around Scott Lynch's work will be forthcoming. But for now, I think there's nothing left to do but to play that sweet, sweet outro music. What do you think? Get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. All right. You know, it's been a while since I've heard the outro music while live recording. You know, I always put it in afterwards when we have the guests. But here we are, guys. Thank you all so much for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, do us a favor and let us know over on the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end on Twitter. Couldn't get that without the one. But we've got the FTF Podcast <laughs> on uh 
our other Instagram is the other big one. And Instagram is just at the FDF yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. And Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they followed us on the socials, they listened to the episodes, and they want to support us even more, what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast, which you can now do on Spotify. Ooh, and apparently, like sixty percent. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, like sixty percent of you are listening on Spotify. So, if just a fraction of you wonderful folks were to throw us five stars, it's right on the top of the little podcast feed there. Uh, that would be so fantastic. It helps us out so much. You can also give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and yeah, but just listening. That's what I used yes, to say. Listening. Just listening is more than enough. <laughs> Man, you're natural. <laughs> That's it's like line. you never left. You just went right into it on instinct. Just listening, yeah. guys. This is more than enough. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode. The end of Comeback Week. The end of an era for the FTF Podcast. And we are going to come back next week with weekly content. Who knows what the next episode will bring. You're not going to want to miss it. Thank you all so, so much for turning. And uh, as always, go forth and conquer, friends. <laughs>